This is the One Soldier Podcast, episode 24, with me, Russell Hillier. On today's show, I'm joined by teacher and professor of religious studies, Gerard McClarney from the University of Alberta. And we're going to do something just a little bit different today, because we're not dissecting any historical battles or military memoirs, as we so often do, but rather... We're going to a place that you might be familiar with if you're an avid reader, and that place is called Middle-Earth. That fictional world made popular by J.R.R. Tolkien, perhaps the most influential narrative of the 20th century. We're going to look at what Tolkien is trying to tell us about our own world and our own myths through the ever-present theme and backdrop of war and bloodshed in this epic conflict between good and evil. And even though the battles contained within the volumes of this story didn't actually happen, there are, as with any good fiction, lessons and truths to be learned therein. And so with that, I'm going to take you to my conversation about the myths and warfare of Lord of the Rings with Gerard McClarney right now. I'm just going to say that I I knew we were going to have a good discussion when we talked a few days ago on the phone. And uh, I I made that comment about how the Riders of Rohan were Vikings on horseback. And then you were like, oh, actually, they were Anglo-Saxons. It's more analogous to the Anglo-Saxons. So then this was going to be awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and a funny thing too is um, Tolkien was like, no, 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 no. I'm not. I don't have uh, Anglo-Saxons in mind uh, when he's writing the Rise of Rohan. But it's like, eh. and I was like, I, are you sure? Like, <laughs> it's surely that's not the case. But uh, did, did he actually go out of his way to say like, no, it's not. It's not analogous to any of these, uh, you know, historical uh, groups. It, well, at least with the Rise of Rohan, he kind of. Um, it was a little more dismissive, like, oh, this is supposed to be uh, Rohan and or, uh, the Angles Axe and so forth. Yeah. Like, well, in general, though, he um, he doesn't want to... Oh, I, okay, well, it's, it's a bit of a long story, but originally he's writing myth. Like, he's trying to create a new mythology uh, is, is what he's doing. Now, originally, though, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, he's trying to write a, a, a new myth for England, right? So, because... We're talking about King Arthur, maybe, but in any case, yeah. So the English had a dearth of of mythology, essentially, right? So, um, and King Arthur, that that it's it's taken from the French, who, I mean, they would have translated something from the Latin. Maybe they got from Welsh because you have the Brits who are in uh, in England who evacuate the island when the Anglo-Saxons start to invade. And that's where you get Brittany, right, in, in, in northern France. Uh, and so they would have kept some of the tradition alive of Arthur. And uh, so when King Arthur, the story is, is put together by Sir Thomas Malroy, that's in uh, 14, late 1460s, late 1470, um, he's taken it from, from the French, right? And, and so it's kind of like, uh, is this really British or not? So anything about any culture, well, I mean, any culture, but there's a lot of famous cultures with, with mythologies out there, right? Like the, the Greeks and the Romans kind of borrow a lot of that. Then there's the Norse saga, right? Um, even as mentioned too, like the Icelandic tradition has their, their own sagas, which, which they would read. It's like, what's, what's the British? So, okay. So now originally Tolkien is, is, has that in his mind that he's going to 
writes a mythology for for England. Uh, and, and so like with like kind of those motifs of like a return of the king and uh, how it's all going to set with with um, islands and water and so forth. Soon so just, just a, so so he wasn't so Tolkien he looked at the the pres or the the myths of England that existed at his time and, and he's saying well th these aren't actually uh like what indigenous English myths or yeah like we could do better is is basically yeah. what he's saying like like we really don't have much to go on uh now uh, yeah yeah so because I mean think about it what what I mean even like the Irish have have some you know celtic heroes and mythology and so forth uh, so yeah what what do they what do they actually have uh, all right so um that's that's originally like you think about it in your own mind like what do you know about english mythology other what? than king arthur right yeah exactly okay so, so that kind of answers the question right so uh, uh, yes, but as he starts this enterprise, this project, he soon abandons it. Uh, he, he realizes that, no, nah, this is never going to work. Um, and he ends up then doing something more idiosyncratic. So he just essentially makes his own world. Um, now, the, what ends up happening is this becomes a well, I would argue it becomes a modern mythology then. Uh, so in other words, it's not particular to England necessarily. And he actually did abandon that idea. Uh, but what he ends up creating, his own idiosyncratic world, is then becomes a myth mythology that that I think modernity or the modern people, contemporary life, uh, started appropriating. You can see some of that too, like in Marvel, um, as Star Wars would be another good example um, of, of modern mythology, um, but um, our myth for the contemporary, like, like George Lucas is expressly attempting to create a modern myth when he's writing uh, Star Wars. Uh, and so that's, yeah, Tolkien, it, he's not necessarily have that particular mind, but he's going to make something idiosyncratic, and then it becomes really a modern mythology. And if you look at the, um, well, the, the, the proof is in the pudding in some ways uh, like the hobbit it's uh, over 100 million copies sold which is which is if you get over 100 million that that's that's, that's pretty good uh, and then uh, I, I, I actually i looked this up uh, oh did you okay yeah so and, and by look it up i mean i i went on wikipedia and, sure, sure. <laughs> so yeah. 150 million copies of lord of the rings sold by comparison yeah. harry potter is at 100 million so tolkien still has you know now, now he does have some a, a few decades head start, but uh, sure, it's yeah. a fifty million gap. Oh yeah, yeah. And what's above him? I mean, uh, I don't know if there's any other fiction uh, that would be above him. I mean, you have some like religious texts, right? Uh, would be higher, like you know, the Bible and so on. But um, uh, yeah. So, so in terms of yes, um, narrative or, or fiction. Um, yeah, so it, you, you can see, so there's something in it, in Middle Earth, that really resonates um, with, with uh, modern uh, readers. Yeah. Yeah. Be before we go uh, too far down this road, uh, sure. I'm just going to tell the listeners uh, how, like, what the genesis of, of this podcast episode was. And so it all, it all starts at the Calgary Teachers Convention, usually... Well, in, in normal years, it's a place where, well, it's a time when all the teachers of Calgary sort of meet up and we go to, we do professional development and go to uh, seminars and well, there's a lot of drinking that goes on on 17th Avenue as well. This yeah. year, obviously, <laughs> obviously different this year. A lot of the, uh, a lot of the sessions typically have uh, titles along the lines of, uh, I don't know, like pedagogy, 
curriculum redesign, blah, blah, blah. And then, yeah. and then I saw yours, which was uh, Oryx, Elves, and Hobbits, Lord of the Rings. And yeah. it, that was a fantastic session, by the way. You, you clearly put a lot of thought into it. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. 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 Well, I told you I liked it so much. I signed up for the the Star Wars one that came after. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So in this podcast, we usually, the listeners already know that we usually talk about uh, or talk to military figures and we look at historical battles and campaigns and memoirs. So we're going down a different road with this episode, looking at fiction, but I, I still think it's, uh, you know, there's obviously still a lot of lessons that we can learn through fiction. and and we're, we're going to get into the, the wars of Middle-earth. At least I hope we, we do. But uh, I, I like where this started off with the, the myth. And I especially liked how in your session, you were mentioning how C.S. Lewis, one of Tolkien's uh, friends, was, uh, and of course, that's the author of Narnia. They had some kind of discussion and, and C.S. Lewis was saying, oh, well, myth isn't really important. And, and Tolkien's like, no, it's actually really important. Could you get into that a little bit? Certainly, yeah, yeah. So uh, there, there's they have a, a long history, uh, Lewis and, and Tolkien. Uh, they first met at a uh, Oxford faculty meeting. So I think of, you know, let's go to a staff meeting. How great could this be? And it, Lewis is writing in his diary later. Uh, I mean, kind of paraphrasing a little bit, but he's like, you know, a nice chap. He just needs a slap or two. Uh, kind of wake him up a little bit. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> So the, the, eventually, though, they did uh, form a, a very solid friendship, uh, and it, a lot of it revolved around myth. So they would get together on Monday nights. It was part of a group called the Coalbiters, uh, and uh, so they would, you know, read Icelandic uh, myths, and, and what better way to read them than to... Uh, read them in the original so they would actually learn Icelandic and pass around the dictionary have you know a glass of brandy on hand and around the fire that's the idea of a coal biter someone's close enough to the fire uh, you're almost eating the coals right yeah. uh, and this was um, formative for both of them because we wouldn't actually know about Tolkien if it weren't for C.S. Lewis his uh, we're just talking about the Hobbit there uh, and think of the copies that it sold well his original audience was actually very small it was his family and so it's it's lewis who's able to ask him a bit about it and and, and drama that that he's then able to share this more publicly and so those those that that's without lewis uh, we wouldn't really know about Tolkien, and we could say vice versa because uh in those discussions lewis also grew up loving norse saga and so forth but he didn't he, he was so the line that he uses with Tolkien there because uh, those discussions go late into the night and one night time a late night talk uh, and walking it's I think 3 a.m. or something at this point a lot of people had already left uh, but Lewis says to him myths are lies uh, and therefore worthless even though breathed through silver so myths are lies and therefore worthless even though breathed through silver and it was mean breathe through silver well, again they're, they're ornate there's a certain beauty in them but for for lewis um, at the end of the day they're non-historical um they're they're fantasy so they they, they are lacking they're they're, they're fallacious essentially uh, at the end and therefore worthless mm -hmm. now tolkien um he he, he uh, would not disagree that they're not historical but what he says is that uh, no there are they are the vehicles for expressing truth in fact the best vehicles we have on hand uh, and why uh, because uh, they involve the imagination they involve um, they give us a language that is not uh, ex uh, centered on the empirical on the physical uh, because uh, the world in which we live in uh, he, Tolkien would say is filled with the transcendent uh, and so we need mythology 
in order to make sense of life. Uh, and you think this is, this is a truism that it goes back to uh, the earliest art that humans have produced. You go to you know, the caves, that prehistoric caves in, in France and Spain and so forth. You have artwork, right? That, that, that's what you see, right? Uh, and uh, we're, there, there seems to be a narrative in there. There's this, we, and we can't function without story. You, myself, our kids, without a framework for placing your life in a story, um, a civilization wouldn't function. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, um, so Tolkien's going to say, no, no, no. Um, myth is, and, and then he has his uh, philosophical or religious understanding of mythology, uh, and that ties into his understanding of, of the, what the role of the artist or the storyteller is. So he has this, what he calls true myth. So uh, there's the one true myth, and that's the, uh, the myth written, or the story written by the capital A artist, uh, namely God. So the world in which we live in is actually the penmanship of the artwork of the great artist, uh, God himself, who um, in the fullness of time enters into his own story. Uh, and so that's the true myth. And, and, and so in this, the, the story of Christ, what we find is all other stories are subsumed and authenticated. Uh, so by that, what Lewis begins to understand then is um, how he can make sense of uh, the Christ event, uh, the cross and resurrection and so forth in light of his life and story, mythology, and so on. So that's instrumental for for Lewis uh, becoming a Christian and and going from there. So uh, so that that's part of Tolkien's take on 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 the role of mythology. You know, so it's a vehicle. It's 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 foundational for us uh, for for placing situating our own lives in it, and also for expressing uh, the, the, what he would call the the. The, well, it's Augustine who calls it, calls it the, the the song of the universe. Uh, so the, the the harmony which we see around us. Uh, yeah. So this is this is what myth does. When you start going down this road of, of what myth is, it makes you wonder what what kind of myths do we have in our in our own world today in our own country. As I was sort of thinking about this podcast, I was thinking, well, what are what are the myths of Canada? And, and I I don't know. I'm not sure. I think actually, I mean, I think we sort of have. Uh, I think in Alberta we have a little bit of a distinctive myth. Uh, it's the West. Okay. Yeah. 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 Tell me more. Yeah. What do you? Okay. Tell me more. Uh, well, I haven't really developed this thought all that okay, much. Okay. But it's, sure. it's, the, it's the West. It's the, you know, the spirit of the cowboy, independence. Yeah. Um, yes, definitely. Not 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 so much uh, not so much deference to authority as you might yeah. find uh, in other parts of the country, especially where I'm from in Ontario. So I, I think we do have a a myth in Alberta. Maybe we're yep. not even conscious of it, but uh, I think it does sort of inform our society to some degree. Yeah, and I've had a number of friends who've uh, also teachers who've moved to Alberta to teach and then moved on to another province, and they have some really interesting insight uh, on on Alberta. Uh, and, and so one is they also mentioned is, is somewhat transient in that often people will come here for several years. They're going to work hard, and that's part of it. It's it's work, right? We're going to work. We're going to work hard, uh, and. Um, and then sometimes, well, we've come here for a little while, and then we're going to move on again, right? Or our, our, our roots aren't necessarily as deep, perhaps, as certainly you'd find in Eastern Canada. And, and isn't that the part of the cowboy myth, too, of the transient, you know, cowboy who's running from town to town? Right, going yeah. last out into the sunset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah and so there's there's a, perhaps a, um, how would you say that, uh, Family kinship is 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 going to be all the more important in our immediate family, but we wouldn't necessarily have the same sense of a rootedness in in terms of lineage with with uh, you know going back again like you can go 
other places for, further east. And of course, people can trace their families back sometimes generations, right? right. For myself, I, I go back to uh, 1979. Well, actually, uh, a little bit earlier, my parents came over, but uh, my, my dad he immigrated here. Uh, he was 19, so I was in the late 60s. But uh, so that's as far as I go back. But uh, and so, so what, where, where did they immigrate from? Uh, Ireland. Yeah. So my dad came over. He was 19. Uh, I think he had. 300 bucks uh, uh, to his name and he just got on a plane and uh, landed in Montreal uh, didn't stay too long and then he came out west uh, he ended up working in Frobisher Bay and a few other places up north but uh, he kept coming back to Edmonton uh, which is I'm just uh, from the Edmonton area so uh, and then he eventually he would travel back and forth back then actually it wasn't that expensive to fly back home to Ireland uh, so uh, he would go back and forth and then he met my mom and convinced her okay we're gonna go we're gonna go to Canada you know after they got married just two years just two years well they're still here <laughs> so uh, and that was back in the 70s yeah yeah so they're still here well it's true though I mean if you uh, you know being from Ontario my family's been in Ontario since the early first half of the 1800s and okay you definitely get a sense of uh, you use the word rudeness. And I think that's, that's a good word. I mean, the, the towns there are often 200 years old and there's nice big stone buildings that have been around for a really long time. Yeah. And then when you compare that to Calgary uh, or really any, any town or city in Alberta, it, it doesn't stack up that way. It doesn't, it hasn't been through the, the course of history and time in the way that, you know, the older parts have. Yeah, like what building in Calgary is 200 years old, right? Well, same thing in Edmonton, none, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. We were talking about this a few days ago, how uh, Tolkien was, well, he was uh, a product of his time. He was a soldier in World War I. Yeah. And uh, fa- fascinating, uh, well, I, I'm, interesting concept is that he lost all of his childhood friends in that war. And, uh, and so he was forced to, and this goes back to the relationship he had with Lewis, uh, this new, you, you called it like a new fellowship that he created with Lewis. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, he did. He had one friend who actually survived, uh, who he was close with before the war, but I mean, just one. So, so imagine, you know, you have a high school students who belong to a, a group. So it could be a basketball team. It could be, um, chess club, like whatever fellowship you have, whatever group you have. Um, and then the war happens and you go off and there's only two of you that make it back. Right. And so that was what it was like. Um, so, so Lewis, uh, I'm sorry, C.S. Lewis, he also went over and uh, in World War One as well. Um, they both actually succumbed to uh, trench fever uh, and and then returned after. So uh, Tolkien, he he's a little bit late to the game. It's 1916 when, when he gets into World War One uh, and, uh, He's just newly married in, in the spring of because uh, he gets the call up. He, he knows that he's going to go into the front lines, see some, and so he quickly gets married uh, before he goes to his, his childhood sweetheart. And uh, so that was in March. And then he's at the Battle of Sun, and that's um, July of, of 1916. And so he's there for four months. Uh, I think it goes till November, but he, he in uh, October, he, he gets trench uh, fever, which um, I guess it comes from. Um, body lace uh and so then he convalesces they send him back uh to england uh, he helped in in the backfield um from england afterwards once he recovered but he never went back to see action but i mean uh, many of your listeners probably know much more about the, the battle of the sum and so forth well it's, they, it's typically regarded as uh the well i mean world war one was a, a savage war probably yeah. you know if you had to pick the 
the one war that you, you wouldn't want to be in as a frontline soldier, that World War One would probably be it because you're living in a trench for four years, uh, just awful conditions. And then not only that, but he's in the worst battle of the worst war. It was the, the opening day of that campaign was the deadliest day in British Empire history. Yes, some 55 or 56,000 casualties, sure. right, in, yeah. in one day. It, not to mention, you know, there's also on the, on the German side, uh, the allies, uh, just looking at some of the stats, I think in total in that five-month span, they had over, is it 400,000 casualties yeah. for just the British, right? For just uh, one side. Yeah. Just the British side. Yeah, and then they not including their allies, plus what the Germans uh, suffered. So just a horrific, horrendous loss of life. I, I actually have a quote here from one of uh, Tolkien's letters, if uh, if you want me to read it. Yeah. Um, and, and here, this is, he's writing, it's a very interesting letter. He's writing it to his son. Uh, two of his sons actually were in uh, Second World War. And uh, uh, he, he's writing to Christopher Tolkien, who, who's in World War II at this point, uh, and uh, he's reflecting on his own experience of war from from the first. And he says this um, uh, just to mention just part of it. Uh, and he's talking about his writing. And in fact, during this war, he says is that um, it generated uh, Morgoth. Now Morgoth is. Um, uh, one of the original henchmen, the original bad guy, Melkor, he also goes by Melkor. Uh, so Sauron is the big bad boss in Lord of the Rings, but uh, he would be his boss. So he's the one who teaches Sauron. Okay, so so it generated Morgoth, so the the, the evil figure in, in Middle Earth, as well as the history of the elves. And and so he's saying here, um, uh, and also some early languages. So he would start developing his own languages as he's uh, in the uh, in the world. So he says this. Um, much of this was done. So discarded, uh, discarded or observed. Now quote. He says we're done in grimy kind canteens at lectures in cold fogs, in huts full of blasphemy and smut, or by candlelight in bell tents. Even some down in dugouts under shell fire. Okay, so this is uh, how he's he's uh, writing uh, is is. Um raw materials, which later become Middle Earth, the Similarian, Lord of the Rings, and so on. So again, this is done by candlelight uh, in, in, under a cold fog, sometimes in dugouts under uh, shell fire. And he admits too, like it, it wasn't the most efficient way of writing uh, and he wasn't always present-minded and uh, maybe uh, he should have paid more attention to what was going on and so forth in, in, in the battle. But uh, that's that was one way in which he tells his son, Christopher, who's now in the Second World War, it's through this narrative. So as I was thinking this, it's like war has a... Um, it's, it shapes him in a foundational way, but at the same time, what Tolkien is doing is trying to shape um, his own future as well, writing it as well. Uh, and so, so it's actually in it's co-temporaneous, uh, co uh, like he's writing it at the same time he's in the work. And so both are taking place, the war shaping his writings and his writings shaping his reaction, his understanding, and really his ability to deal with uh, what he's witnessing in, in the Battle of the Somme. And, and, and the, yeah, the well, it, it's, yeah. it's interesting, too, how, uh, you know, he's developing this concept of uh, an, an evil character, which will then, you know, come about in his books. And in world war one like world war one isn't like world war two where there's uh like an evil like an evil side but world war one is sort of i mean the slaughter was meaningless because you can't really look at either side and say oh well that side was evil and this side wasn't so i guess he he's just looking at the 
the evil which is permeating the battlefield itself. Uh, yes, and um, you have a whole revolution in in English society, which was very stratified. Uh, certainly prior to, and uh, you know, the class distinction would be uh, most important. Which um, th- th- so then begin to ask questions of why are we doing this, right? Who, who, who made the call that we should actually go into this war in the first place? And, and what was the point? And a lot of that comes through, I think, in some ways um, with uh, The Hobbit, uh, where uh, part of the whole plot revolves around the recovery of, of lost wealth. Uh, and, and you have the Battle of the Five Armies and so forth. Um, and right before the Battle of the Five Armies, it's the dwarves are just ready to, to shed blood of the elves and the men who later become their allies uh, because it's all revolved around, well, in this case, it's the Arkenstone, uh, this coveted prize. And it's only through renunciation uh, that that peace is established in, in, in uh between the elves and uh, men and and the the dwarves, um, so it's a fascinating take on 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 wealth uh, and um, its ability to um, generate strife, and not just on a forensic or an individual level, but at a statewide level or for a tribe or a kin or a people. Um, so. Yes. Uh, so actually, yes. Asking those questions: Why were we? Do, why did we have this war? What, what was it for in the end? Uh, and certainly, you can see some of that; those ideas coming out uh, in, in in the Hobbit, particularly. A couple thoughts on that. You are in your job as a teacher and a professor. You do a lot of writing, right? Uh, sure, I try to uh, a lot of emails. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, but I mean, when you're like writing your lessons or whatever, like there, we always, as writers, like there's always times when we have, uh, you know, this writer's block, but Tolkien, yep. you know, when you read about him writing the, uh, you know, what will become the books yep. in the trenches, no excuse for writer's block. Uh, if you can get it done yep. in the trenches, then we don't have, <laughs> writers don't have much of an excuse not to get her done. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and just, it, it's inconceivable that the war didn't have some kind of effect on him as a man and him as a writer. Yeah, there's a few things that can be said there, um, and you're absolutely correct. Um, it has a, um, a profound, and how could it not, uh, influence on on him, his entire generation, and, and even the, the one to come, and then you have World War II, right? Um, so, uh, but yes, uh, just incredible. it's hard to actually articulate how, how uh, much of an impact it has. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, okay, I'll say a little bit about that. Uh, you mentioned him writing. It's interesting, though. Um, he doesn't, uh, when he talks about his own writing, he talks about it as not as a creation. So he's not creating this story, this myth. He, he actually calls it a discovery. Now, that's very idiosyncratic. Uh, it's as if... Uh, the story is already out there somewhere and he's just discovering it. Uh, and so, for instance, like the, the black... Above is like, the muse is giving him the story. Exactly. Like I, I, now, you hear this from other people. I know if you've done some writing as well, right? So, so perhaps sometimes you feel like um, you're just—I don't know—the right word is uh, for an athlete. Perhaps might be uh, uh, flow, or you're in the zone, right? Yeah. So, so you just got it, and you're just going. Just let me pound it out on the keyboard, right? It's just, it's just coming. And, and Da Vinci actually talks about this in his own discoveries and so forth. Like um, he just felt like he was being led in some ways. Now. For Tolkien as a writer, um, he, he has, he's going to say that he's 
are discovering this. Uh, he's not creating it. it. One example would be like the black writers. He says, I, I didn't know where they, they just showed up and there they were. Uh, so I had to fit them in somehow. And uh, same thing with like Faramir, like Boromir's brother. Like I, he just, and at first he's like, I don't know if I really like this guy, like, but he's there anyhow. So I got to deal with it. Uh, and, uh, and he goes with it. So, so he talks about that, that the, the discovery. Now, though you talked about uh, the influence of war in, in his writing. Uh, what's, we were talking earlier about the, um, well, the popularity of, of his books and so forth. What would distinguish Tolkien from a lot of the other writers of his generation? Is particularly like leading up to World War One, you had this whole from the late 1800s, uh, even the mid to late 1800s, you have this whole impetus of um, really a sense of things are getting better and better progress is, is the word really. Um, you have technological progress, uh, longevity uh, with, with science and medicine, uh, technology and so forth. Uh, you have also have social Darwinism in the, in the background. Uh, so there's understanding that things are getting better and better and soon we're going to solve all of the world's problems. And that, that was really a common sentiment prior to the First World War. World War I shatters that in many ways because we can look now at um, technological progress and see the havoc, the absolute chemical warfare and so on. I mean, machine guns were around earlier, but um, uh, looking at this, uh, we can see like what this can actually do. Um, and so um, a lot of writers become cynical and pessimistic about humanity and, and, and where we're going with all this and, and, and to extent, a disillusionment with, with tradition. Tolkien, on the other hand, um, he is uh, no less disillusioned about the propensity of humanity uh, to fall into uh, evil and sin. Uh, so, so he has that down, certainly. But um, he, he actually looks uh, to, uh, he doesn't become pessimistic uh, in, and cynical in the same sense, uh, but, but rather he goes to the past. Uh, he, he, he looks at, uh, he's a medievalist as well. So he, he, he looks to tradition to guide his way forward. Uh, and, and we were talking earlier there, uh, in, in some ways, what's going to guide his way forward is myth. And it's actually, then it becomes his own myth. Uh, in that this is the contemporary myth, which he's going to now create. And some things about war in his writings is that it's, it's integral to, to Middle Earth. In fact, uh, war is life. You might want to think of it that way. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's a motif that Tolkien would certainly uh, agree to, um, that, yes, uh, sorry, other way around, life is war, right? Uh, so so, so um, it, it's a constant struggle. And this is a very telling uh, exchange uh, at the opening of uh, Lord of the Rings. They're, uh, the, uh, the hobbits, the four of them, are fleeing the Shire, uh, and they come across Gildor, who's an elf, who's going a different direction. And it basically ended their running right now from the, from the Black Riders, uh, but, but they, they want some advice from him. But Gildor says to them, uh, you can fence yourselves in. He says, the, the wide world is about you. You can fence yourselves in, but you cannot forever fence it out. So, so in other words, you, you can hunker down and shelter, uh, but the the wide world is about you, and it and you need to deal with it. Uh, so so it's not a um, an escape. You can't escape from the world's problems. You have to deal with them. Um, there's only really one character that I can think about who is somewhat of a pacifist uh, in in his writings, and he's a he's a very unique character. That's Tom Bombadil, who um, if if you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, yeah, and your, yeah. your readers are, uh, he's an odd duck to say the least. Uh, now, very fascinating character himself, but unlike pretty much any other character. And he, he's the one who really doesn't want to be involved in, in the War of the Ring. Other than him, um, yes, there is a part that, that everyone has to deal with it in some way or another. 
uh, and, and so um, yeah, you, you see you see that um, going on. Um, now, speaking of that, um, how do how do Tolkien views war and and how we see war in his own ranks? You, you see something of a just war uh, theory articulated with, by by Faramir. Um, so, so Tolkien is not necessarily going to, on on the one hand. Uh, uh, glorify uh, bloodshed and, and gore. Um, he, he's certainly going to acknowledge it. Uh, but I think Faramir, I have a quote here from him, if I can pull it up. Uh, it kind of expresses this. Uh, what does he say here now? Uh, yes, yes, yes. So uh, this is Faramir speaking here to, uh, to Frodo. And he says, war must be uh, while we defend ourselves against a destroyer who would uh, devour all. Uh, so, so he says, war must be. Again, if we have an opponent, yes, we gotta we gotta deal with this. Uh, but he continues on. He says, "But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend, the city of the men of Numenor and Numenor. That's that's Maya's Tarth, his his people. Uh, and so that is um, that's how Faramir expresses his, um, and he's a valiant warrior himself, uh, honored and in all the rest." Um, uh, and, and courageous, and, uh, so so that that's how he expresses his articulation of uh, how he views the war, um, and it's it's so part him, of life. War, war is not uh, a means to itself; it's it's a way to you know protect what you love. Yes, for Faramir, uh, it is, um, and it's to exactly that's exactly it uh, for Faramir. It's to protect what you love. So he's doing this um, for that, and 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 he says it's it's going to happen. So it's inevitable. As long as we have a destroyer who would devour us, um, of course, we're going to be uh, preparing for war. And at that particular moment, the, the, the war is about to break loose, essentially. Yeah, that is contrasted with the, the other characters who they, they, I guess what you're saying is the other characters are, well, they like war. They, they enjoy it. Well, that's an interesting one. That's an interesting one. Um, here you do see um, a different group of people. So this is the the, the men of, of the Mark. So so the writers of Rohan, uh, and and they're uh, again they're different, I guess, than the the Minas Tirith uh, group of uh, Gondor. But um, they, I mean, perhaps I don't know if I want to generalize here that the people of Gondor against the Rohan, but maybe it's just Faramir. But um, so, I mean, Faramir would be different than his brother uh, as well uh, in some respects. But in any case, when it comes to the writers of Rohan, they have this. Um, Called a hymn, uh, a song which um, uh, which uh, they call to mind in battle. And uh, here I have it here. Um, it's it's a great um, bit of of uh, well, it really captures in some in some ways how the writers of Rohan view war and and what they're doing. And it, it, this is the rallying cry, if you like. It goes like this: Out of doubt, out of dark, to the days rising, I come singing in the sun, sword unsheathing. To hope's end I rode, and to heart's breaking, now for wrath, now for ruin, and a red nightfall. So that is uh, called to mind, that, that hymn, that's kind of like their banner as they go into battle. When they're about to face, it looks like insurmountable odds. Uh, so here, they're still going to go into the battle. They're still going to fight the last man. So that's a out of doubt, out of dark, 
to the day's rising. Uh, I come a singing in the sun with sword unsheathing. So we're going to go for this. Uh, and, and if we go down, this is how we go down, you know, hearts breaking and so forth. Um, but now it's for wrath. Now it's for ruin, right? And a red nightfall. So blood is going to be spilt during this day. Uh, and, and, and that's um, the charge. And then King Theoden uh, is the one who leads this. And he really is a character who is really uh, revitalized and, and rehabilitated when it, when he realizes the warfare that that is uh, at his door. Uh, for the longest time, he's under the um, the sway of Wormtongue, who's soothing him with all sorts of platitudes and 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 obscuring reality that there's nothing. No, send your troops away to the you know the far edges of the mark. They don't 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 get them together and prepare for war at all. Right. Um, and it's it's the movie does a great job of this. It's it's the one place I will admit where the movie can enhances the book a little bit. Uh, when when Gandalf uh, casts uh, Warm Tongue down, and it really looks like an exorcism uh, in the film. Uh, in the book, you, when you read it, you can catch it a little bit more. Uh, if you've seen the film, uh, you, it makes more sense than when you read the book again. But he has to break that spell that that Warm Tongue. What a beautiful name, right? Warm Tongue. Uh, that that is he's planted within him and only then does Theoden rise in in stature to his uh, in his fullness of who he actually is and, and only then does he really become the king and that's what a king does does he not organizes his his people uh, calls them to arms uh, and, and and leads the charge and so this is um Yes, so war then becomes at least the realization of the war and the call to uh, to go out and, and fulfill your your calling here uh, and that of your people is what coalesces uh, Rohan and and ultimately um, becomes one of the deciding factors in in in, in the helping lift the siege of of, of Gondor. A couple of things. Uh... First of all, like I love how it's been many years since I've read the books, but yeah, yeah. some things that st- that still after at least fifty or twenty years, I can remember is Tolkien's use of color and imagery, like especially red. And when you read that quote about uh, King Theoden saying the, the red nightfall, uh, that triggered my memory of that. And there's there's other moments where he's talking about like the the red sun glinting on the the spears uh the the red fires that are lit up on the mountains uh yeah just sort of uh i don't know just it's funny how that just triggered in my in my mind after all these years second of all really interesting how you bring up that theoden is uh he's a new ma- uh, war makes him a new man doesn't it uh worm tongue is he's like dope he's the drug yes uh he's the oh, opium yeah. THC like concentrate yeah yeah that's yeah, that's yeah. that's uh what I'm talking about. but in, in in Tolkien's book war is the antidote to that well it's yeah, well it's 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 the realization that life is war we're, we're, we're up against evil uh day in and day out um whether we're actually in um an overt military context uh combat situation or not we are in a combat situation every day of our life uh, is essentially it um and um yeah, and so this is the the um, the spell that Wormtongue is, is is cast upon him. No, uh, oh, send your troops far away. Like there's nothing to worry about here, right? Uh, and I mean, there's all sorts of uh, analogies we could probably draw today uh, in our own. Uh, 
lives are, you know, oh, not, to pick, sure. on our sure. not to pick on our students, but the lives of our students, it might seem a little more obvious than our own lives in some cases. Like, I, I still remember, uh, well, it's been a while since we've been in a physical building, but uh, walking in uh, school, and, you know, you come in early in the morning, and I still remember the contrast between when I was a student teacher, so this is back in the early 2000s, uh, to today, when you come walk into the school. So the early 2000s, you walk into school, you know, there's a few kids congregating, talking to each other, uh, and then as, you know, time passes on, they, they, it's louder and louder in the hallways to the bell rings, and okay, quiet, get into class. Well, nowadays you walk into the school and, okay, there might be a few there early, uh, but then as there's more and more, it's still pretty quiet. Uh, and, and and they're not really talking to each other. There might be a few, but they're all like this, right? They're all like this. Yeah. Uh, and and it, it's, it's shocking at, at, at lunch hour when you have six kids around a table. And uh, three of them have a, a phone in their hands, and the other two have you know one on the table, and there's only one person or you know, two people talking, right? Uh, or one or two. People. So it's it. Anyhow, um, so I, that's I, just, I knew I knew exactly where you were going. With <laughs> you can read it. it. I, I see it every day too. It, it, it's yeah. a fascinating thing how you know when you walk in the hallways and it's quiet, but but really the kids are just mimicking what the adults are doing. I mean, I, I tell my own kids this that when I was young. And we're sort of going off on a tangent here, but when I was young, uh, you know, you'd, you'd go to the, like, let's say the bank with your parents and people would be in line and like people would be talking to each other in the line, perfect strangers. Uh, you, you don't see that anymore. So, uh, yeah. Or, or riding the bus home. Right. Okay. I mean, uh, you actually going to talk to someone on the bus? Like what? No, only, only crazy <laughs> people do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but, but that, that bit about warfare, we could say that, um, not only that, but, um, evil is formidable. Uh, that, that's something that's, uh, front and center in, in Tolkien's writings, whether it's a uh, smog, uh, the dragon or, or whether it's Sauron, um, or our Melkor and, and the Similarian, uh, evil is formidable. Uh, and, 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 and so that's the bit about worm tongue is, is to forget about that. Uh, forget about that struggle, right. Um, be, 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 uh, you know, just sit back and relax or whatever. Don't worry about it. So, so that's kind of something that's going on there, I think as well. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's maybe, uh, you know, I, I do want to get into the actual battle of like outside minus Turith and, you know, some of that stuff, but um, could, could you get into the, the role or what, what is Tolkien symbolizing with, Frodo being stabbed by the Morgul's sword. I okay, this is this is really uh, a, this yeah. is key. okay. Yeah, okay. I'll I'll talk about Frodo here. Um, you, when you're asking about uh, the symbolize and so forth, like um, there's one other thing you should mention about war though. When it comes to Tolkien, is um, when he's writing though uh, his his stuff, he's he expressly says he's not trying to write an allegory. So um, a lot of people first, when they're reading this, it's, you know, post uh, World War II, they think that the ring uh, is perhaps an allegory for the atomic bomb. Uh, and Tolkien has to kind of dispel this a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, this is this is not actually what I'm doing. And in fact, he says, no, my writing is not an allegory. So he will say, uh, for instance, like the, um, the Dead Marshes, uh, that, that they have to traverse where you have, it's from an ancient war, uh, from a different age, 
but you still have the bodies in the field, uh, really they're under a swamp, uh, but they're kind of preserved there, but both orcs and elves. Uh, and, and some people say, well, is this, is he actually talking, you know, is this, this is the trenches, right? This yeah. is what he means yeah. from, from, from Battle of Psalms and so forth. And, and Tolkien says, well, you know what? Yeah, it is, in, it is influenced by this, but not only. This, I'm not actually trying to recreate what I saw, but these are some of the, there might be some ingredients that came from what I saw in here, but he says there's other places of literature I've got, I, I brought into uh, the Dead Marshes and so on. Um, so, so that that's kind of in the background. He's not writing an allegory where um, you can have a one-to-one -one correspondence where the ring symbolizes this, uh, you know, like the atomic bomb or so forth. Yeah. Or this but, but but he's still but he's still drawing from his own experiences uh, to and, create the the setting and yeah yes yeah yeah well, of course yeah and um and he's um he says the term he uses of allegories application so uh you can apply what i'm what you find in middle earth to to life um but i'm not trying to rewrite uh the primary world he would call the primary world yeah. so i'm not trying so, to rewrite but, yeah because so is there really a difference between allegory and you know drawing from your experiences with things that actually happened yeah for Tolkien yes there's a big difference so for him with allegory you can have a one-to-one -one correspondence and the reason why he doesn't like allegory um which is part of the reason why him and C.S. Lewis had a bit of falling out later on in life is that uh, he, he doesn't like to see this um because allegory is re is dressing up uh, a, a an old story in new clothes it's like why would I rewrite a story that already happened uh rather he wants to give credence he wants to give respect we might say it that way to the characters that he's writing they can't be bound by some other event or story that's already happened uh, but rather they they need to be themselves they're their own and that's the whole idea of uh, discovering them instead of creating them so he's not going to try and pigeonhole them or, or or shimmy them into you know the, this particular angle because this is what happened in a different story but rather he's going to let them flourish uh, it's almost like giving freedom to his creation all right now, uh, you asked though about the the Morgul blade and, and Frodo. Yeah, that, that's a profound um, bit of the story that's often mm, overlooked, uh, particularly if uh, you know we're more familiar with the movies. Because it, I mean, they're so long that I mean, Peter Jackson, God bless him, this is a great great series that he, he produced. How many hours can he fit into like Return of the King? I mean, you get an extended edition; it's even longer. But so yeah. there's a whole bit of the scouring the Shire, which is is really more or less left out. Yeah. And this is the aftermath, which is um, because you think, okay, they drop. I'm not spoil alert. Uh, what happens with the ring? Okay, they destroy the <laughs> ring. Okay, uh, I don't want to give that. Okay, uh, so do you think? Okay, it's over now. Okay, the the mission of fate accomplished, right? Um, but no, um, what we find here is eventually they return to the Shire. And guess what? Who's in the Shire? Well, it's Saruman. He's escaped from uh, uh, the, he's uh, under police of Treebeard and the ants, right? At, at Isengard. And, and so uh, they call him Sharky now at this point, but uh, he's, he's kind of masterminding the, the destruction of the, the Shire to the best of his ability. And you see this kind of whole industrialization thing going on uh, and, and, and all the smog and pollution, all the rest. Uh, and now uh, they have uh, yeah, like a Shiris, they call him, instead of Shiris, like the, it's a police state almost is what he's trying to uh, uh, establish. Okay, so, so that's happening. Um, and, and they have to go back there. Uh, Frodo um, is very reluctant uh, at this point to draw a weapon, um, and and he he does realize oh no we we if a push comes to shove yes we're gonna we're gonna have to do this, um, but he um, there's a certain how we say this he he's a wounded fellow uh, he he um, 
well, I do have to give it away a little bit. <laughs> when it comes to Mount Doom, <laughs> okay, he says he falls. Okay, he is not the hero of the story. This is actually, um, uh, maybe it was his associate Frodo, he must be the hero, right? Well, he, it's, it's actually not him. Uh, when, when he comes to Mount Doom, he says, uh, I've, I've come here, but what I've come to do, I choose now not to do. And he says, so I, I, what, I've, what I've come to do, I choose now not to do. He says, the ring is mine. And so this is Frodo's fall. He succumbs to the power of the ring. And um, it's, it's, it's uh, really Sam is the one who carries him. Sam is the true hero of, of, of the story. Uh, and he's the one who carries him up up, up uh, there and, and the one who helps guide him uh, home again uh, as they're going. But in uh, any case, Frodo, it, there's a fall which he experiences. Really, it's the impact of being that this closeness to uh, the, the corruption of the ring, this, this corrosive force of, of evil, which, which the ring is. Um, and also, yes, you mentioned the Morgul blade, which uh, he is uh, pierced with, uh, which um, is designed to really draw someone to allegiance to the, essentially the same thing, to the ring. Uh, and, and so this, uh, he's saved from that at, at that battle. He, he, he recovers a uh, weather top um, through the help of, of Aragorn and, and then uh, uh, Elrond. Uh, but but he, that woundedness that he experiences weather top, as well as the fall at... Um, uh, at Mount Doom uh, is is that uh, it stays with him, so so he uh, he and he has a hard time dealing with it, uh, and so later on, uh, this is two years later after after Weathertop, where he's first uh, pierced with the blade, uh, it's um, it's coming up to the anniversary. And he's just all out of sorts. Uh, Sam can tell, uh, you know, what's up, uh, Frodo, and he's just uh, gloomy, and, he, and he's he's weakened, and it's 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 the wound. It's still with him, and he says it's something I will bear as long as I'm in Middle Earth. Uh, and, and so, for the rest of his stay on Middle Earth, he he's uh, a wounded uh, uh, fellow, uh, and and he has to uh, try to deal with this. Now, what's interesting about Sam? Sam also carries the ring. Uh, he sees much of the same battle. Now, okay, granted, he he wasn't pierced with a Morgul blade, but at the same time, I mean, he, he's doing battle with Shelob, and he's 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 seen his fair share, we could say. Yeah. Um, now, it, it, uh, Sam has to deal with some of the same things. Um, interesting, he, he ends up getting married, <laughs> so, so uh, and it's starting a family, and his child, he wants to name Frodo, uh, so the new Frodo, but it turns out it's a girl. So, so she's she's Eleanor instead. But we can see how Sam is 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 going forward after the war, um, and, and rebuilding. He's he's a gardener, and now he becomes a family man, and he has a certain uh, purpose which which guides him. Frodo, uh, the bachelor, um, and, and again that woundedness, it's never it's never healed. He he doesn't get over it, um, but he has to deal with it uh, to a certain extent. I mean, he he does his best through through fellowship and friends, and. Um, yeah, so it's it's it stays with him. Yeah, it, and it's it's interesting because uh, you well, I think this shows like a level of uh, I don't know prescience from Tolkien because he he's seeing and writing about something that wasn't really spoken of at the time. You know, people when they were in combat for a long period of time, they it, when they cracked, as everyone will crack eventually. Um, you know, if you if you see enough combat they call it shell shock or soldier's heart or whatever, you know, euphemism it is, but Tolkien seems to be, I don't know. He, he seems to be like really, uh, he's just like seeing it clearly in, in a time when it wasn't really spoken of all that much, which is really interesting. Yeah. And, and part of it is 
having a foundation of what is good and what is evil. So understanding the immensity of evil and, and understanding its power. So if, if that, you can have that down, um, that then becomes a, a, a groundwork for understanding how can I move forward then from experiencing this, this massive uh, really encounter with evil, uh, right? Um, how can I move forward? And so, so that's, that's part of, um, I, I think, uh, in his writings as a part of it, what's going on there. And as, as noted, like, this is one of the things that keeps him going through the trenches as well and writing some of these things out. Um, yes. So that, that is prescient is certainly. And, and again, yeah, is by the time we get to world war two, there's the deeper understanding of, okay, yeah, you could rotate troops out after two weeks and so forth. Uh, when you're in the trenches, like you can't just leave them there indefinitely yeah. <laughs> because no, no one can handle that. It doesn't matter, um, how well formed you are and what kind of base you have. Um, it's just, there's only so much a person can take. That's right. What's, uh, I've, I've had veterans, uh, who have been in modern warfare tell me that, you know, our, our understanding of PTSD is a little flawed because it's been put to me different ways, but uh, essentially there, I think a lot of us who have never been in war or combat, we think like, okay, you either have it or you don't, you can either, you're either going to be like an animal on the battlefield or, or you're not going to be able to take it. But what's been told to me is that it's not like that. Uh, you, you never actually know how you're going to react in battle. It's, it's new every single time. So just because you, are you know a complete animal or a beast in in one battle the, the next day you you could be sheltering in your foxhole yep yep yeah. um oh definitely definitely um you, you see this a little bit in um in a more ancient uh epic and that's um uh the iliad so so homer um is right. There's one scene where it's uh, King Agamemnon who uh, has to go out there, and you know it's the the Achaeans, like the Greeks against the Trojans, right? Uh, and his side, Agamemnon's side, that's the Achaeans or the Greeks. Um, there, I mean, he's the king, but uh, it's not like a rigid structure where you follow the orders of the king. It's more like a tr tribal confederacy where, yeah, I might listen, but we're from a different tribe, so I'm your ally, but I might go into battle, I might not. Anyhow, the, he has to go around and. To the troops who some of them are sitting on the sidelines they're in their the chariots uh and like he's like hey come on like get in the battle what are you doing why are you on the sidelines uh and, and then he has to kind of antagonize them a little bit uh diogenes is is the, uh, the, the one guy who's just sitting back like and then someone's like are you gonna take this from him like come on you, you're a great fighter you don't have to prove yourself today why why are we even gonna get into this battle we've already fought you know uh, in the end of the other battles so so yeah, yeah you can see that um the psychology of it in, in different works of literature and, and so on. And it's, yeah, it's not the same every day. And um, how do you uh, enter into that zone? Uh, and, and how do you get to that, that next level um, when, when it comes to um, is it, like athletes might use a different term. Like I mentioned earlier, like flow or something like this, yeah. but um, are getting to that zone. Like how do you actually get combat writing that? So um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know if it's a tangible thing that you can put your hand on uh, or, or not, but um yeah, it's, it's a good point. Yeah, for sure. And I was going to mention one other thing, though, about um, recovery. And that, that is something which we see in um, just mentioning there, the, the scouring of the Shire. Because uh, the, the war is over now, right? After Frodo has won and, and the, the, the allies, or the, the alliance rather, this last alliance that they, they've won. Um, so shouldn't it just be a bed of roses now shouldn't it just be glory and uh and uh well from one glory to the next right and it's not it's it's a tough slug going back and and uh, scouring it, it means to like 
it's a cleaning, a cleansing, because the, 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 the place that they've gone back to is now unrecognizable. Uh, and, and, and things are turned upside down in many ways. Um, and mentioning there, it's, it's really become almost like a, a, a police kind of state, like, uh, and, and this, this, um, I mean, there's the shark use behind all this, but it, so some some people wondered, okay, is this is this Tolkien and his take on a, coming back to uh, contemporary society after the war? Like it's it's like we went out there and now we come back, but it's not all that easy when we've come back uh, after what we've all been through. So uh, you, yeah, you can see some of that. Yes, there's the acknowledgement that no, uh, it, as long as you're here on Earth, <laughs> there's going to be struggle. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so we can see that that coming through um, uh, as well. Um, th there are how we use this. The word, the, the right word is not perhaps uh, solutions, but uh, th there are uh, ways of, of of going working through the mire. We might say that. So, uh, and some of the things which we see in, in Tolkien's writings. So, I mean, of course, we're going to acknowledge that there there is the formidable evil which we face all the time. So, how do we deal with it then, right? Uh, and for what we see in his writings is there are a few key things and one is friendship it's friends and i'm sure your listeners know this very well but when it comes to from what i understand when it comes to combat and so forth a regiment where people are friends with one another it's it's not so much you have an allegiance to an idea or some ideal out there i mean you do have to have some framework for that but to have a friendship, right, a fellowship, with a, that's going to create a bond uh, which will get you through both on, on a battlefield, right, and uh, by extension uh, afterwards, uh, life after, right. Um, so that would be one key, which which Tolkien uh, certainly see in his writings. It's friendship, that fellowship. Which in his own life, um, mentioning earlier, right, uh, banding together with other veterans and like C.S. Lewis, also uh, and, and others, they they didn't know each other before, but they had been through some of the same things. Uh, and, and again, many of these men had lost uh, many, if not all, of their childhood friends, and, and so now they need to reform new friends, yeah. right? And and so they have that commonality, and but that's key, I think, uh, for for them. Yeah. Um, and, and also, then they become creative too, right? With with what they do. And their output yeah and that, that's like you're you're just like describing the the genesis of uh the legion i mean that's the whole point of it is for veterans who don't even know each other who can come together and uh have have like a mutual understanding of you know what they've been through and and, and seek comfort that way so knowing that war is is such a, an integral part of middle earth the the land that tolkien's created I'm hoping we can like geek out a little bit sure. at least. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so the Riders of Rohan, uh, you know, knowing that Tolkien says no, no, there's there's no, there's no analogies, but yeah, okay. So the Riders of Rohan, they're they're the Anglo-Saxons. Yeah. What what does that make the orcs? Oh, that's a good question. That's a really good question. Now, Tolkien will actually give different answers to to who are the orcs, and in fact, in his writings, we see a, a slightly different answers uh, too. In fact, so uh, one is that um, I think this is from Treebeard, uh, who uh, basically saying, yeah, they're like a corruption of elves. So they have been um, uh, somehow uh, succumbed to, to Sauron or Melkor, and uh, here they uh, ultimately become corrupted. And so this is the uh, idea that evil doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's really just a corruption of what was once good. Uh, there's another hint and so forth in Tolkien's writings that perhaps the orcs are just really the genesis of uh, the, the Melkor, Sauron himself, uh, essentially. 
so there's there's a little bit of a question about okay where do they originate from then uh, and uh, I think the the corruption of good is a um, uh, a motif which we see resonating throughout much of his writings like think of the not just the orcs, but the uh, the ring race, right? The black riders. Well, what are they, right? What's behind those masks, right? Oh, behind that hood, uh, what's there? Um, and uh, really, they 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 are formidable foes, uh, but they they are they are uh, it's they are cannibalized essentially by the ring, which which elongates their life. They're, they're, these are kings from another uh, uh, age, uh, yet they still ride upon earth. But they're all they're. they're uh, um, uh, raison de eight is, is is essentially of the ring that the, the ring race and, and so they're eaten away till there's essentially they're a shell uh but they still have this this purpose uh, uh which is really just subservient to the ring which goes uh with them so um so yes yeah, so who are the orcs um that, that, those are kind of two different answers that uh we find in tolkien um what's interesting though is he will apply this to uh, contemporary life. So when he's writing like letters to his son in, in, in the battlefield and so forth, uh, and he's talking to just in general, like he, he's talking about other orcs that he sees around him. So uh, there could be orcs, uh, you know, in your neighborhood, right? There could, there could be orcs in your workplace. Uh, they could be orcs, uh, yes, on, on, on in the battlefield as well. So um, yeah, that, that's something that he uh, he applies um, more liberally, we might say, uh, uh, the idea of an orc to to uh, to to, to uh, how how we might behave and act in in our own life, and we're, how we see that behavior exhibited uh, as well. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, uh, kind of idiosyncratic and Tolkien being he, he made up that word orc. Uh, so that, that I mean, some of the words were around before, like a goblin and, and dragon, of course, a wizard. But uh, orc is yeah, it's his. So well, it's it's a fitting word. It's just like you say it, and like you, if you, if you didn't know anything about Middle Earth, if you heard the word orc, you'd sort of like already get an image in your mind, which I think just goes back to the mastery of the many languages that Tolkien could draw from yeah yeah and there yeah yes yeah for sure okay i don't know if this is i don't know if i read this somewhere or if i just created this in my own mind but um the the pivotal battle of middle earth is uh you know i think it's called the battle of pelinor fields i think yeah. i have that right yeah. and so like i said I'm not sure if i read this somewhere probably on like a blog or something or if i created it in my own mind but the rise of rohan coming down saving minus Earth. At the last second, really, they're heeding the call of their alliance with Gondor, this ancient alliance, uh, which I want to get to, by the way. But it's, it's very reminiscent of, I don't know if you're familiar with the Siege of Vienna in the 1600s with the Ottomans. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know all the details, but yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not going to pretend I know all the details either, but okay, uh, sure. <laughs> it's you have uh, basically Vienna is under siege for many months by the Ottomans. They're, the Ottoman Empire's army is huge. The defenders are few. They send out the call to, you know, the Christendom uh, to, to help. And yeah. many of the calls go unanswered. And uh, the, the Ottomans are getting closer and closer. They're, the sappers are at work. They've blown holes in the defensive walls. It seems like Vienna falls. And if, of course, if Vienna falls, then Central Europe is in big trouble. And then at the very last moment, this muddy host of Polish and various German uh, units arrive. Biggest cavalry charge in history, by the way, uh, okay. at the siege no of Vienna. 
Uh, and so they ride down and they smash through the, the Ottoman forces. I don't know. You, you just, you can't help it, but uh, draw the, the comparison between the two, at least in my mind. Oh, no, I think that that would be a very uh, valid comparison to make because um, you see the way Minas Tirith is, is situated and, and, and Gondor itself. Um, again, originally Tolkien is trying to write a mythology for England. And so some of the geography is tied into that. And later again, he kind of, he's not so tied to it uh, and it kind of lets it become its own thing. But yes, you can see Minas Tirith in some ways uh, being reminiscent almost of Constantinople, which um, is is the Eastern bulwark, which which really prevents uh, Islam from, from taking over uh, Europe. Uh, if, I mean, a lot of um, perhaps uh, if you're more from the West, you might think of uh, the Battle of Tours or something like this yeah. in 722, yeah, yeah. right? Like the Charles Martel, right? This this yeah. is uh, this is us, uh, you know, uh, pushing back the, the Islamic invasion of Europe. Well, I mean, that was kind of probably an, uh, a skirmish on the outskirts uh, and wasn't maybe that decisive in, in stemming the tide. Like it was like the extent is was Spain. Okay, uh, but but um, it was Constantinople. So Constantinople is is what endures till 1453. And um, uh, without this, uh, we probably wouldn't be speaking English today, uh, right? Uh, and and, and right. Christianity wouldn't be like a major religion in, in Canada either. So um, uh, yes, uh, so uh, yes, Minas Tirith very much seems uh, in that sense. Uh, that bulwark uh, on the east, uh, which is just staving off uh, you know, a capitulation or really as uh, uh, being subsumed by by a whole other group, um, and really the end of uh, of our culture, uh, essentially. So, um, yeah, you can definitely see that going on uh, as well. And, and, and what's interesting is, um, you know, the, the hobbits in the Shire, and uh, maybe the writers of Rohan might be more aware of it. But you know, they're not always aware that like who's who's actually protecting us, right? Like. Uh, maybe you're living in, you know, Ireland or something, and you're just, you're just not aware of like, well, why why is our culture still standing, right? Like, uh, like who's actually policing out there, right? Like, who, who's keeping things in line? So, so yes, uh, that's a constant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they had that that role for for centuries. I mean, uh, it's four ten when when the West uh, falls of the Roman Empire, but it, it stands for another thousand years in, in the East. So, yeah, what what what's interesting to me is that for for good to triumph in Tolkien's world. Every single thing has to go the right way. Like every single little thing has to go the right way because the odds are so stacked against them. So what, what are the main victory conditions for the, uh, the, I don't know what they're called, the men of the West? Yeah. Well, the last Alliance, I guess, is, uh, uh, you know, everyone together. So, so, so the, yeah, well, the Numenar would be like Gondor and so forth, but yeah, the men of the West, you have the elves and, and, and everyone is involved, right? I guess you have um, Gandalf is in there too, but uh, so, so the, the, the dwarves, right? Uh, there's some dwarves, but um, it's something you'd never expect. Okay. So, so, okay. So you mentioned that, right? So, so you have the men of the West. Okay. We're, we can throw in a few elves that show up and I mean, there's not that many dwarves, but um, right. So who's actually, and you have Gandalf, of course, right? So I can ask you, like, who's the most instrumental in the victory? Yeah, well, it, it's a it's a tough one. Uh, the, the, and that's sort of what I'm getting at is that like everybody. Okay, well, well, okay how, about, how about the Hobbit then? So in the Hobbit, who's most instrumental in you know the, the things going the right way? Which character? If if you're going to point to a character, 
would it be uh, Gandalf? Yeah, I mean, you could certainly, yeah, of course, you, you can argue Gandalf, but um, in some ways, it's, it's Bilbo, right? I mean, he's the one who hands over the Arkenstone to Gandalf and the the elves and the men who, who are besieging, besieging Thorin and the dwarves. And, and without him doing that, uh, and he's also the one who um, dispossesses Smog of his, his prize cup, which ends to Smog's demise and so forth. Um, and, and so it's this tiny hobbit who, who is who's instrumental in in this the the victory of the battle of five armies now Bilbo's not really doing much in the battle of five armies uh because he's i mean he's just this tiny little hobbit but he's instrumental in that now when you think of, of lord of the rings well it's frodo of the shire I and mean, of course samwise gamgee as well not to mention Merry and pippin um what an odd uh, choice like what would would an odd un, most unlikely hero possible uh and, and so you're asking what are the conditions for victory uh one we could say is be like a hobbit <laughs> all right so so uh, if you, you could go around barefoot i suppose uh, what else does it mean to be a hobbit right um, but uh, here we might think of uh uh, the Latin term would be humilis, which which in English would say humble, uh, humbleness, uh, and humilis means to be of the earth. Uh, so true, true humility means to uh, be of the earth in the sense of like, uh, have pity on me or something like that, self-pity, that's not what it means. It means just to acknowledge your status, to acknowledge who you are in life. Uh, and, and so humility is uh, is key uh, for, for this battle, which we find ourselves in day in, day out. Uh, that's one. Um, another one I think we already mentioned this is is um, friendship. Uh, so so I recall that scene where um, they're going to Moria, the, the mines of Moria. Moria is it, one of my favorite passages in, in Tolkien's writings when when they're, when they're in Moria. Uh, and so this is the nine walkers who who've uh, traveled uh, and they're trying to get around the mountains and they can't, so they got to work back. And Gandalf is uh, really uh, wants to go into the mines of Moria, and Aragorn's all apprehensive about it. Anyhow, they're trying to get in. And the door's locked, and they're like, "How are we going to get in?" And they're just spending all this time. There's, there's a the uh, the, uh, the image of the door there that, that appears, and they can see the door, and there's a password. Like, oh, just say the password and and speak the password, and you can get in, right? And they're trying to figure out what it is, what it is, and and, and it, it eventually they figured out it, it's Melon in, in, in that Elvish, but it's, it just means speak friend. And the doors open, so so all they have to do is speak the word friend. And 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 poor Gandalf, I mean, he's you know knocking his head on the wall trying to figure this out. But um, I mean, of all things, you least expect this is the key which unlocks the door, friend, right? And so again, that is um, something which is uh, crucial to uh, any victory which we're going to have uh, or experience, right? Uh, so yeah. humility, friendship. Um, another one uh, we could say is sacrifice. Um, I mean, think of the the uh, fellowship, right? Um, so they all have other things they could be doing at that time, right? Uh, um, uh, it, it, Aragorn wants to reclaim uh, the, the throne of Aenor and, and Gondor, um, but Boromir certainly wants to uh, revitalize uh, Maya's Turth and its alliance. Um, they, they, they've all made major sacrifices to get where they need to be. Uh, but, I'm sorry, sorry. Uh, but yes, they rather, and there's other things that are calling their attention, but they go and do this anyhow. Um, Frodo, for his part, it's this is almost like a death sentence uh, when when he uh, goes, but he freely says, oh, I'll take the ring. And they're like, oh, glad you said that, Frodo, because <laughs> uh, we don't know who else is going to get this. So, so uh, and, and um, 
so yeah, sacrifice. Uh, and, and Sam, his just devotion to to um, to Frodo uh, is instrumental. So it's it's victory here comes from some of the least looked for uh, most unlikely quarters, uh, some hobbits, right? Um, and, and other things we might just take for granted, friendship, uh, right? And, and other things uh, with, I mean, sacrifice we mentioned, but and with that is, is responsibility. I mean, today we're just so familiar with what are my rights, right? These, these are rights, these are my rights, right? Um, do we talk much about responsibility? <laughs> Our duty? <laughs> this is your responsibility, right? This is your duty. Uh, really? I don't even know what my responsibilities are. Okay, so so uh, what are they? Please someone talk. So so um yes, responsibility would be another one, which which we see is key to situating ourselves and being ready to um, navigate this world. Um, yeah, right. but, and that's in well, I mean, when you talk about friendship, it's the friendship between individuals with Sam and Frodo. It's also the friendship between uh, nations, Rohan and Gondor. That alliance. I mean, th they could not have won the war without heeding the call of, of, yeah. of that alliance. Yeah. And it was touch and go for a while because it wasn't clear that this alliance was still happening. Like, okay, we said we were allies like a long time ago, but are we? <laughs> is this still right? Are we still on the same page? Um, but definitely, yes, yes. Yeah, like when when the chips are down, are are we going to are we going to be there? You know, like yeah. I don't know. Maybe I, I guess you could say the the alliance of uh, the Western world would be uh, you know a, a fair comparison. It's a lot of countries with their own self interests um, and not always getting to get, getting along that well. But when when things really matter, are they going to come together? Are they exactly? And, and what we see then um, happening when, once once the dust settles is. Um, some of the you know my men of my earth might be wondering, well, where was everyone else when we were bad? Well, it's the, the elves were preoccupied uh, fighting their own battles and so forth. Uh, the dwarves had their own things going on, and so, but um, yeah, you do have some of the uh, elves who do uh, end up coming to the lines, right, and and, and showing up in, in battle, uh, and and so they all there there's a, somewhat of a renewal of this this old ancient alliance which emerges as well. But uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, th that's the question. When the chips are down, um, who's going to be there? Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I think that's really relevant for the world we live in today as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, if, I mean, again, it's part of that worm tongue thing is do we even know um, who, who, who we're up against, right? Uh, I mean, you can have the director of CSIS just remind the population once again, like there's active attempts to infiltrate, uh, you know, industry and, and, and not for... Um, benign purposes, right? So you have state-sponsored uh, espionage and so on. Uh, again, um, I mean, in our day-to-day -day lives, do, do we acknowledge this? Do we know this is going on? How, how attentive are we to um, the world that's out there? I mean, sometimes we're, we're back in uh, 1989 or something where we think, okay, you know, Cold War's over, we've won, and, uh, you know, nothing. there's nothing else to worry about now uh, kind of thing, right? Um, or or are, we, are we like, are we the hobbits in the Shire? who just have no idea about what's going on in the world. Uh, well, and that's another very good question. I mean, um, the, the, I mean, that was one of the things back in the, the previous U.S. election was, uh, you know, certainly uh, the Trump administration was calling for NATO's partners to uh, pay more into to, to, uh, their GDP, right, as a percentage of GDP into the military spending and so forth. Um, so, yeah, that's a good question is um, what are we able to, uh, what are we putting down? Um, one thing I always bring up with my students is, um, hey, you know what? When you graduate, um, 
there's all sorts of things that, that, yeah, that you could end up doing. In a lot of countries, you, the choice is already made for you. You're going to do one year of, of military service, sometimes up to three years uh, of, of some sort of service for the state. Um, and, and that's not an option. That, that you, That's something you have to do. Um, and and so this is something that is, they're like, really? Whoa, no way. Like where? I'm like, lots of countries, <laughs> right? It's, it's in fact, it's very common that uh, you, you need to uh, be involved. And, and so, yes, I, I think um, certainly amongst uh, my experience my uh, with, with students um, and, and young people, there's not much, uh, I suppose, even adults, my friends, too. Uh, yeah, there's not always that awareness of what's going around uh, around us and, um, you know, yeah, who, who are our friends, right? Well, one, of the, one of the themes of this podcast is how things fall apart really quickly. When think, so, in other words, history moves imperceptibly slow for 99% of the time. And then you, you get to that last 1% and then it's history moves really quickly. And all of a sudden you're off the, the edge of the cliff. Yeah. It happens, happens really quickly. I mean, who, who in, uh, who in 19, uh, okay, here's a good example. Uh, Sarajevo winter Olympic city, the Olympic city of Sarajevo, 1984, less than 10 years later, it's the epicenter of the, the, the worst genocide in European history outside of world war II. You know, Rwanda, 1993. Who could have predicted that a million people would be machete to death a year later? We, we can look to our own country uh, in February 2020, about a year ago. Who could have predicted that the world would be so different uh, like it is today? And so I think Tolkien was on to something about how you know, Middle Earth had a, a, at least the Shire had a pretty good run, a pretty peaceful run. And then all of a sudden things happen quickly. It, things happen quickly, and um, yes. So that we mentioned already that that um, the the wide world is about you. Uh, you can fence yourselves in, but you can't fence it out forever. So there's that as well. But then there's also once things do happen. Okay, so once the things are set in motion, and now we realize, okay, this is where we're going now. Um, the question is, you might not have chosen to be there in that space and time, uh, but that's where you are. All right, so that's where you find yourselves how are you going to react, right? What are you going to do with the, the, the cards that are dealt to you now? Okay. Yeah. And, and this is the call, right? Uh, this is, this is where uh, virtue uh, is, is um, become, where the rubber hits the road, right? Uh, this is where yeah, your virtue needs to come into play. Uh, and, and really it's where your metal is tested. Uh, and, and so that's at the individual level. And I think that the same thing could be said at a community level and then obviously more broadly at a state level. Um, yeah, that, that's where, um, yes, yeah. exactly. You never and, and, and the question is, uh, will most people rise to that occasion or like, like Frodo and Sam, or are we just a bunch of Boromirs who are going to, you know, go down the wrong path? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and 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 there. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if we have an answer to that, but I actually, I I think my gut tells me that we're we're most of us are Boromir. You know, uh, if, we're, if we're gonna be honest with ourselves. Yeah, I I, I my my inclination to say I, I I can't really just generalize all all Canadians and so forth, but I think generally. Uh, at least well, maybe Albertans, but uh, it seems to be more of the Shire in some ways. Uh, yeah. Is that uh, maybe we're not always aware of what's what's going around the, the world around us? I mean, certainly we're more aware of like economics, what's what's going on, and how this needs to be important uh, for our economy and so forth. Um, but yeah, as far as um, 
actual uh, combat and and um what might happen I, I don't know if that's actually in our ethos really no, I, think, uh, I don't think so because like if, if you think of it uh, if we just go back to the book again uh if canada being the shire makes a lot of sense because we're insulated from the dangers of the world the, i mean the world is a dangerous place there's there's no denying that you just look at what was going on in a dozen different countries right now yep. civil war genocide lots of terrible like my yeah yeah but uh that's not happening here it's a dangerous world but we're insulated from it because we've got big brother america next door and uh they're going to make sure that nobody messes with us in many ways it's like sort of having gondor and rohan uh you know protecting us from the from the evil of sauron oh certainly and yeah, i yeah, i just yeah. i just thought of that now but it, it makes sense to me yeah yeah um yes certainly yeah yes uh and uh we can look at it that way uh and um maybe maybe it's uh maybe i'm reading too much into the the fictional story but uh <laughs> but, it, but it's fun to do that i think uh i think it's neil i think neil gaiman has the phrase that fiction is the lies that we use to tell the truth and uh so that's i, I think that you know a, a good book like lord of the rings fictional story still there's a lot of truth and wisdom that that is held within those pages well, certainly and again going back to our opening discussion it's like uh why else would people be so attracted to it right well, what is it that's in there well it's, it's it's the truth right it's 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 a it's a window into our reality is is what it is so it's not an escape from from the world it's rather a a mirror which we can look into and then better understand what's going on around us yeah maybe this will be like the last uh thing that i ask you before i let you go and i, I know i told you a couple of days ago that we, we keep this to an hour and we've blown through that. Okay. I, haven't, I haven't kept track. So, <laughs> um, okay. So in a hundred years from now, uh, is Lord of the Rings going to be that iconic work of fiction that we know of it today, or is it going to be sort of antiquated, uh, and you know, a piece of fiction that, that people have forgotten about? I think it's it has legs. I, I think it, it does have the the, the ability to to uh, stick around for the long run. There's there's two uh, reasons for this. Uh, one is that uh, it's, it's 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 a written text. So as a written text, it has the appeal to the imagination. Uh, so um, Tolkien is big on uh, on uh, the imaginary world as opposed to in his day. I mean cinema wasn't really around but drama was like a theater and he really he detested uh what he saw when he saw Macbeth being put on stage because he wanted to imagine like the the um I forget the name of the forest but the forest actually approaching uh the, the castle where Macbeth is 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 being laid siege to and it turns out well it's just men carrying branches right and across the stage it's I don't know how that looked so yeah. he, he so that was kind of like the ants what's that kind of lame when you put that on stage exactly exactly so utterly disappointing but whereas in his imagination when he can read this um it takes on whole other proportions and then that's partly where uh the ants come in right but yeah. um so so part of he, he had this thing against the visual arts now it's a very interesting discussion to get into because now with cgi and so forth are you know the computer graphics and so forth you you can have a really um some some pretty polished stuff uh, on the screen, um, but the fact that it's written, I, I think it's it's much more going to engage the imagination, and therefore becomes less dated. 
All right. So, so I mean, you could still pick up uh, Homer and, and read it, and because it's a, well, it's really a poem that's supposed to be sung, but um, you can still see what's going on. Um, yeah. Because because that imagination is going. Where I'm thinking something like Star Wars, um, maybe it might have some enduring appeal, but. The, light, the further time goes on, uh, there the older the the graphics might seem, and uh, so on. But then again, you do have some storylines that are there, like the father son relationship, the lost father, which uh, I think are enduring as well. So with Tolkien, yes, I'm going to say, I'm I'd be very confident uh, if I was buying shares, I, I buy them in Tolkien. That uh, yeah, a hundred years from now, people are still going to be re reading this, um, and and that the world is still going to be alive, that people can inhabit. Cool, man. I think that's uh, that's a pretty good place to end off. There, even now, there's there's all kinds of like questions and topics circulating in my mind. But it's getting late though, so we may have to save sure, it for sure. a part two. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Th thanks for inviting me on. Uh, it was a great conversation. So uh, yeah, thanks for us. You should really uh, you should put some of your that those session talks on uh, post them somewhere like on YouTube or something. Uh, yeah, I got to get around to it one day. I, I've, I've promised my parents. So uh, the first was like, hey, you got to, you got to see what, you got to hear some of my talks. So I was like, okay, I, I got to get around to this. But uh, yeah, that's something to, on the to-do list. <laughs> okay, thank, thanks yeah. a lot, man. Really appreciate it. And uh, ho hopefully, uh, I mean this. Hopefully, we can talk again sometime. Oh, absolutely, send me a send me a line, and uh, we'll do it. Okay, all right. Thanks, man. Okay, Russ. Take care. Yeah. Cheers. Bye. Goodbye. Okay, and that concludes my discussion with Gerard McClarney. If you like today's episode, if you like what we're doing here, then do me a small favor, like the video, subscribe to the channel, follow the podcast. Hey, you can leave a comment and tell me what you think about the topics we covered today. And I'll do my best to get back to you and respond. And we can sort of keep this conversation going. Speaking of which, big thanks to Ski Bum Plus, Steve Ingram, Bugsy Malone, <laughs> Augusto Pinochet, and Chelsea Scott, to name just a few. Gentlemen, ladies, thank you for your support. Finally, I'm going to dedicate this show to everyone out there searching on a quest to find their own myth and battling the orcs and the dragons along the way in our own lives. That's it for today's show. Until next time, out.